for the beauty of the earth, for the wonder of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. It sounds like an Earth Day sermon to me. And at some point when I picked this text, I was thinking, let me remind my congregation of the power they have to save the environment. Let's talk about reducing our carbon footprint. And let's talk about not using, you know, single-use plastic. And let's talk about gasoline and taking walks instead. And let's talk about laws and policies that will protect our mama. And that's all super important. But that's not, in the end, the resource I feel called for us to think about today. It's our little people, friends. It's our children, our babies, our young ones, the ones in India, the ones in Ghana, the ones in Detroit, where yet again lead flows through drinking water, the ones here in Manhattan, the ones in our congregation, all the children, all the children belong to us. And they are our future. And they are our present. I'm so glad to have Christina here today from the Children's Defense Fund. This is the 30th annual Children's Sabbath for the Children's Defense Fund. And it's the 17th Children's Sabbath for Middle Church. Why must we care for the children? Because they're too vulnerable to care for themselves. Of the 4 million children that live in New York, 52% of them are children of color, 15% black, 25% Hispanic, 8% Asian, Hawaiian, Asian Pacific Islander. 20% of them live in poverty, under the poverty line. The number is so ridiculous, it's hard to say it out loud, but a family of four at $27,000 a year. Roll your eyes with me at that. That's what we consider poverty. As we fight for $15 an hour for adults as a minimum wage, I think I made $15 an hour when I was in high school working at a department store. The world isn't set to take care of our children. If the median income for a white family of four is $100,000, the median income for a black family of four is $43,000. And a Hispanic family, just about the same. 150,000 of our children are homeless. It takes 2.9 full-time jobs at minimum wage for a family to afford a two-bedroom rental unit in New York City. Somebody say, Lord have mercy. 18% of our children live in food-insecure households. 31% of them between the ages of 10 and 17 are overweight because they don't get to eat good food. It's McDonald's, it's Burger King, it's yes, Popeyes tastes good, but that is not good for your body or your soul on a regular basis. 71,000 children abused or neglected 
in New York. These are New York numbers, y'all, not national numbers. Doesn't it break your heart? Statistics can sound boring, are boring, but in fact, a statistic is a short story that lets us know where our hearts and minds need to be directed if we're going to heal the world. We can look at justice issues as way out there. We can look at justice issues as our national calling, and middle family it is. But it is the way the filibuster, it is the way voting rights being eroded, it is the way a woman's right to choose her own life. It's the way all of that trickles down to the basic family and the way all of that trickles down to children is how I want us to think about that today. They can't lobby for themselves. They can't vote for themselves. They can't stand up for themselves. They can't, well, they can, they do, throw their fists up in the air as they march for justice in the streets, thanks be to God. But we are the ones we've been waiting for to make sure that we raise the next generations of fierce lovers and that they have what they need to survive and thrive so they can take care of the earth, so they can take care of us, and so they can take care of each other. Somebody say amen. amen. I am, um, when I was writing my book, Fierce Love, you were like starring in it, middle family. Uh, lots of words in here about you in the book. So much so my publisher said, um, can people who don't go to your church do good things in the world? <laughs> yeah, I guess they can. I guess they do. <laughs> but you, you inspire me, middle. You inspire me. And this is what I say about reparations in this book. Because don't you know I'm talking about reparations? I got an email from Jocelyn Liu the other day that said, I think you're talking about reparations. I said, is it a secret? <laughs> I'm talking about how we repair the earth. I'm talking about how we repair the human family. I'm talking about how we make what's right wrong, what's crooked straight, what's too lofty in the middle place so everybody can have enough, so everybody can live safe, so all of our children, all of our families can survive and thrive. I'm talking about Ubuntu, my friends, that a person is a person through other people and that when how is hungry, my stomach growls. And when Zane is afraid, I'm responsible to make the world safe for him and his siblings and Ophelia and Octavius and all your little people as well. Sometimes we boil the word reparations down to some kind of financial transaction that needs to happen, and I think a financial transaction needs to happen. Let me be crystal clear, I do. But I want to quote Iva Carruthers this morning, who is the, the general secretary of the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Conference, an interdenominational justice conference that happens uh, just like our Revolutionary Love Conference does. She's calling Virginia ground zero in reparations. She's citing the fact that the dozens of enslaved Africans landed in Virginia in 1619 and the taking down of the Robert E. Lee statue, it puts, it puts Virginia right in the middle of the conversations about reparations. But she's saying this, family, reparations can never be fulfilled or reduced 
to a financial transaction. That's not enough. There's not enough money in the world to compensate for the trauma and horror my four parents experienced over the centuries. I wish I had said that. That's real. But an important paradigm shift is required to usher in the truth-telling and the reparatory justice as a context for transgenerational harm. Hear me? Transgenerational harm that must transform into transgenerational enrichment and benefit. We don't want it to be a hundred years from now and little black children are hearing sermons like this without there being a change in the way we live our lives. We don't want there to be a hundred years from now the little white children, indigenous children, Latinx and Asian children are wondering why their parents didn't join with African-American parents to fix the world. We don't want to be having these conversations as though we don't know what we need to do because we do know what we need to do. <coughs> I'm always startled by the church's denial about how long Christianity and white nationalism have danced together. After all, a toxic cocktail of white Protestant nationalism, moral racial purity, and virulent xenophobia is what gave rise to the Ku Klux Klan. By the way, today in 1827, President Ulysses S. Grant called martial law in some counties in South Carolina because of the Klan activities there. It's a good day to be talking about reparations, my friends. Here at Middle Church, before the fire destroyed our building, don't you know my dreadlocked painting hung up there with a white enslavers painting? And now, Middle Family, you are doing reparations. You've been doing, you've been had done some reparations, Middle Family. What happened was, <laughs> What had happened was Gordon hired me, you know, 18 years ago to repair some stuff. Somebody say amen. And what had happened was we decided together as a board and a church that being multiracial and giving ear kisses on Sunday morning was not enough. We decided, declared, insisted that we would be anti-racist in our programming, in our worship, in our justice, and in the world every day. That's what had happened. And, and you've decided, you decided that you were going to make a freedom school, a freedom lab, freedom programming, just like the programming in the Freedom Summer for intergenerational learning about justice and history and art. And even though the building burned down, you did that this summer. Oh, yes, you did. Outside in the park, you did it this summer. Somebody clap for that. You, middle family, might be going a little slower than we thought, but you are determined to move toward freedom together. Our, 
our Revolutionary Love Conference has been deconstructed this year to be monthly freedom salons that begin next week. And they'll be about indigenous reparations, and they'll be about black reparations, and they'll be about women's reparations, and they will be about making what is wrong right in America. You're doing that. You're doing that because you asked the staff to do it, the staff is doing it, and you're supporting it. This is how, this is how we do it, baby. Okay, this is how we do it. <laughs> Sherry, it's okay. I'm always bringing a little secular up in here just to make it good. You decided to focus staff resources on doing anti-racist, pro-democracy work. You decided to support the voters' reform group that meets every two weeks to make sure that we're keeping voters' rights before us. You do that, middle family. You do that with your volunteerism. You do it with your prayers. You do it with your love. And you do it with your financial donations. We cannot do the work we do on a wing and a prayer. We cannot do the work we do thinking that the big mama at Collegiate Church is going to come by here and nurse us through these times. The big mama at the Collegiate Church has lost weight. <laughs> She's a petite mama these days, and her resources are not what they used to be. Are you working with that, Darren? <laughs> Our mama don't have it like she used to. And middle family, though we are, some of us, extraordinarily wealthy, some of us, and though some of us live paycheck to paycheck, and though some of our members live in shelters, you have raised your capacity to do reparations by making more than 50% of your operating budget for the last three years. I don't know what to say about you. You're amazing. And though that is awesome sauce, in the next couple of years, we're just going to have to do more of what we need in order to survive and thrive. So I'm asking you today to think carefully and critically in the next few weeks about how you'll use your time, how you'll use your talent, and how you'll use your treasure to repair what's broken in these United States of America, to repair what our ecclesiastical ancestors broke. You didn't do it. I'm not Dutch. But we did some stuff, y'all. Somebody say amen. We, we, our people, our people, so-called Balt, Manhattan from the Lenape. Yeah, we did that. Our endowment did that. Are you with me? We did that. We had slaves. Our endowment had slaves. Yes, we did that. We persecuted black people in the city. Yes, yes, we did that. And to undo that, we, the inheritors of the little bit of resources Big Mama still got and our own, need to stand up, ante up, and get in the game. You are not alone in this. Your board is in this. Your pastor has committed 10% of every dollar I make from my book to the reparations needed in this place. Yes. So, you know, you'll buy some books and that'll help. But <laughs> John and I always ties what we make to the reparations we do in this church. 
And I'm asking you to pray and ask yourself, what will you do? If you're online, it could feel like my resources are not needed because I'm not there. Honey, your resources are needed. So please pray about what you might do. And y'all, she talked about money three weeks in a row. Yes, I did. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I did. Yes, yes, I did. Yes. So whichever one of those three sermons made you feel all itchy inside or the one that made you feel uncomfortable, that's probably the one. <laughs> that's probably the one to replay. I love you. We can't do it without you. I need you to show up for the children. Amen.